Would you take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 21. We'll have it on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you as well. I've titled this message, The Autobiography of Jesus. You may be thinking, what's that about? Jesus never wrote an autobiography. Well, it's not a book-length autobiography. In fact, it's not even a magazine-length article, and it was given in written, not oral form. It's one of those parables that we've been looking at, but make no mistake, it's Jesus' story. Now, let me set the stage here. Jesus had entered Jerusalem two or three days earlier to the shouts of Passover pilgrims and the praises of both children and adults. But even in the triumph of that moment, there was tension Some of the Pharisees in this vast crowd of surging pilgrims begged Jesus to hush his disciples. They thought that their loud praises bordered on blasphemy, and they worried that their disorderly conduct might bring uh, the wrath of the Roman military. After arriving in the city, the tension didn't decrease, it increased. First, there was a conflict in the temple in which Jesus actually made a whip out of cords and drove both people and animals right out of the temple precincts. Then there was this edgy confrontation with the religious authorities, which could easily have ended in violence. That was followed by run-ins with Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians, who were the secular arm of the Jewish government. When Jesus' disciples entered the city on that previous Sunday, they were almost deliriously happy. It seemed like all their dreams were about to come true. But now, just two or three days later, they were worn out by the stress. Even a child could see the hatred on the faces of Jesus' enemies and feel the hostility that just emanated from them. Each evening, Jesus left the city and retreated to Bethany, which is what we would call a suburb about a mile away. Then each morning, he returned to the city to teach the large crowds that were gathering daily in the temple courts. By midweek, the tug of war with the religious authorities had become more serious than ever. Jesus' opponents were no longer trying to contain him, which they had tried to do for several years. Now they were trying to destroy him. And Jesus, for his part, was openly critical of them. Think of a teacher in Iran criticizing the supreme Ayatollah, and you'll get the idea of how dangerous the situation was. The man that Jesus was publicly criticizing had already decided they were going to eliminate him. They just hadn't found a way to do it yet without setting off a riot because Jesus was immensely popular with the people. Jesus told the story that we're going to look at today on Tuesday or Wednesday of what is now called Holy Week, midway between his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and his crucifixion outside the city's gates. The story is his story that he's telling, contextualized for his hearers and set before them in the form of a parable. Now let me make one more comment before I read it. The setting Jesus chose for this autobiographical story is a vineyard. That was not arbitrary. This story would not have had the same impact had he chosen to set it in a wheat field, say, or in a desert. See, the vineyard image 
had been used famously by the prophet Isaiah as well as by the psalmist in Psalm 80. And Jesus' hearers would have known immediately that the vineyard in his story represented Israel. Okay, so let me read it. This is Matthew 21. I'll read verses 33 through verse 41. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Now, the beginning of that story is so close to Isaiah 5 that Jesus' hearers could not have missed the connection. Isaiah 5 verse 1 says, My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press out as well. In the Isaiah parable, the vineyard represents Israel, which God planted in the Holy Land to produce good fruit but which produced sour grapes instead. As soon as Jesus' audience heard that his story was set in a vineyard, they knew, as we know, he was talking about Israel. But whereas Isaiah was concerned with Israel as a whole, as a country, Jesus will go on to focus on Israel's spiritual leaders. And remember, Jesus could see representatives of those leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, standing a few feet away, listening to this story as he told it. In the first century in Palestine, there were some farmers who owned and worked their own small farms. They would be 8, 9, 10, 11 acres, something like that. But there were also investment farmers who owned many tracts of land and leased them out to tenant farmers who would work them on shares, something like for 50%. Somewhere between 25 and 50% was the share. These investment farmers were crucial to the agricultural industry in the first century. And all of Jesus' hearers would have understood what he was painting for them perfectly. This particular investment farmer was no slouch. He did things right. He not only planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it. He dug a wine press, which would have been, I just saw this in Turkey, would have been two vats, one lower than the other and connected by a clay tile pipe. And then he built a watchtower. This guy was no one-mule farmer. He was a big-time operator. As soon as he had everything ready and the vineyard planted, the investment farmer entered into a contract with his tenants, and then he headed off on a journey. We're not told why, maybe to look for other land investment opportunities. 
Now, everyone listening to Jesus knew that the vineyard represented Israel. <clears throat> the investment farmer represented God, who was looking for Israel to produce fruit, which, by the way, is a key term in this story. In the original language, it appears twice in verse 34 and once in verse 41 and another time in verse 43. And they would know that the tenant farmers are Israel's spiritual leaders. If you question whether or not Jesus' hearers really would have understood this, look at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. And so did everyone else. When it came time for the harvest, the owner and the servants, the owner sent his servants to collect his share. That first year, his share would have been very sparse. In fact, he might have had to pay money because it takes at least five years for a vineyard to start making any kind of profit. But he wanted his share nonetheless for an important reason, because collecting rents was one way a landowner substantiated his legal claim to the property. If a landowner, and some of these people lived in other parts of the Mediterranean, if he died or for some other reason made no claim on the property for three years, then the people who worked that property, if they could show that they'd worked it for three years consecutively without paying rent, could apply for legal ownership. And that's just what's going on in this parable. That's what these tenants were hoping to do. So when the servants showed up to collect their master's share of the harvest, the tenants showed them the door, and worse. And the master, remarkably, let them get away with it. He simply waited until the next harvest. I think that's the best way to understand this story. One year between each of the times he sends servants and his son, and then he sent other servants to collect his share of the crop. Now, this is verse 36. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Now, if you were sitting there listening to Jesus tell this story, you would think how absurd it was. No landowner would ever put up with that kind of treatment. This, this is a remarkable thing, but some of the big investment farmers around the Mediterranean in the first century were actually known to have hit squads. They actually employed hit men to go after tenants who didn't pay their rent. If you didn't pay your share, you were a goner. The fact that that was happening means that tenants did try to avoid making payments and probably tried to use legal means, claiming that the landlord had abandoned the property, that three-year rule, to establish their own right to the land, which is what's going on here. But still, Jesus' hearers could hardly imagine a landowner who wouldn't do anything, who was so benevolent. What owner would allow his rights to be challenged like this, his servants to be mistreated and even killed? And then, as Jesus tells the story, see, it begins to dawn on them. Wait a minute, the vineyard? That's Israel. The tenants? Those are Israel's spiritual leaders. And the owner represents God. And of course, God had sent his prophets again and again to Israel, and they were mistreated and ignored. They were even killed, just like the servants in Jesus' story. As the martyr Stephen put it later on, was there ever a prophet that your fathers didn't persecute? So now the crowds are putting this together. He's talking about the prophets whom God sent to Israel, and they realize afresh for themselves how remarkably patient and long-suffering God has been. 
But then Jesus takes the story to another level. Up to this point, he's been telling the story that everyone knew. God placed Israel in her land, and he expected her to produce good fruit, justice, mercy, love for his sake. But Israel's spiritual leaders acted as if the people in the land belonged to them. Religion had become an end in itself, a source of security to its leaders rather than of glory to God. Israel's leaders fell into that way of thinking because they had come to see God as absent. They used his name to validate their efforts, but they did so in order to get what they wanted, to secure themselves, to provide for their wants. They talked and acted as if Israel belonged to them. They forgot about God. That's a trap people can still fall into. When I was a young pastor, many of the older pastors in the denomination I served, when they met, they would talk and say things like, well, my people are doing this or that, or my church is so-and-so. And I started talking like that, too. And then one day, this is before I moved here, I realized I was talking as if the people of God belonged to me, or as if I owned the church, and I intentionally broke the habit of saying such things. Lockwood Church is my people in the sense that I'm part of them and they're part of me, but not in the sense of ownership. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. It's too easy for church leaders, like Israel's leaders long ago, to assert ownership over God's people. That happens whenever people begin to think of God as an absentee landlord. And God have mercy. We keep making the same mistakes over and over again. I said this was Jesus' autobiography. Where does he come into the story? He comes into the story at this point, now that people understand that God has been amazingly long-suffering and patient, even though his servants, the prophets, have been ignored, mistreated, and killed. Now, this is verse 37. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. There is absolutely no doubt that Jesus saw himself as the son. And he saw with 2020 vision what was going to happen to the son. Verse 38, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. If the landowner sent servants at harvest time the previous two years, which is how I think the story ought to be read, and this was the next year, that meant that the tenants had spent three years, the required legal period, on the land without paying any rent and could begin proceedings to claim the title in their owner's absence. There was one obstacle in the way, the owner's son. Now notice the unusual wording in verse 39. We would expect it to say they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Instead, it says they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, this might be because of ceremonial purity laws. Had they killed him in the vineyard, it it could be claimed that the fruit was ritually impure because of the presence of a dead body. But more importantly, we realize that this was about to happen to Jesus in the next couple days. They took him outside the walls of the city and killed him. 
The author of Hebrews stresses that point. The high priest carries the blood, he said, of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. See, understand that as Jesus told this story, it's just a day or two before his arrest and trial and execution, he had no doubt about what was going to happen to him. He was telling his own story, which he saw as the culmination of God's age-old story. It's the story of God's loving overtures to humanity and humanity's irascible response. Humanity wanted nothing to do with God, and when God forced the issue, they got downright cross with him. Jesus is telling the story of his own death at humanity's, at Israel's leaders' hands. He saw it coming, and he didn't back down. He didn't even flinch. At this point, Jesus skillfully brings his audience into the story. This is verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now remember, those tenants are standing a few feet away in the persons of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And as they stand listening, someone in the crowd says, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the share of the crop at the harvest time. Now can you imagine how the chief priests and the Pharisees bristled at that? But Jesus wasn't done because he knew that his story would not be done with his death. So he immediately quotes Psalm 118. Haven't you ever heard this? This was the psalm, by the way, that the children quoted on the day of the triumphal entry, two or three days before. It's a psalm that Passover festival pilgrims chanted as they came into the city, so it would be fresh on everyone's mind. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus knew that his rejection and death would not be the end of him. He had previously and repeatedly told his disciples that when he got to Jerusalem, he would be handed over to the religious authorities, mistreated, killed, and on the third day be raised. He saw it clearly, and he mentioned it frequently, sometimes in metaphorical terms. Destroy this temple, he said. Speaking of the temple of his body, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. By the way, that's one of the charges that was made against him at the trial, that he threatened to destroy the temple. They were talking about what he had said there. Or, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Sometimes he spoke metaphorically, but sometimes he spoke in the most straightforward way possible. We are going up to Jerusalem. This is Matthew 20, but you can find it in the other Gospels as well. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. He said this again and again. He saw himself in Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected, that the builders, the religious authorities rejected. But he expected that his resurrection would vindicate him and judge his judges, and the Lord himself would do this. 
Then he said, therefore I tell you, this is to the crowd now, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And when he said the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, I have no doubt that he looked, he locked eyes with the chief priests who stood there with their teeth clenched and their eyes smoldering. Jesus knew that death was days away. He knew that it would be painful and humiliating that the men who stood listening would find a way to do to him everything that was in their hearts to do. They would make him pay. And indeed, he did pay. He paid the debt that Israel could not pay, the debt that we cannot pay. They made him pay, but that was the beauty of it. When the sentence had been served, the obligation of the law was satisfied. If a man's sentenced to 10 years in the state penitentiary and he serves his 10 years, he is paid for his wrongdoing. When the penitentiary door swings open, the law has no further claim on him. Now listen, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, which is a ways too high for us to pay. So Christ paid it for us. He paid our debt. He did our time. And once the price had been paid, the door of the grave swung open. Death could not keep its hold on him. Those are St. Peter's words. Nor can it keep its hold on us. When the door of the tomb swung open, it was proof that the debt of our sins had been paid. Now understand this. Jesus stood undaunted in the face of death. We don't usually think in these terms, but I want you to think of it this way now. He stood undaunted in the face of death because he believed in the resurrection. Whether or not bishops and theologians believe in the resurrection, whether or not you and I believe in the resurrection, one thing is for sure. Jesus believed in the resurrection. He looked ahead and he saw death making its swift approach, but he did so without quailing because he believed in the resurrection. And if we believe in the resurrection, that is, if we believe in the resurrected one, we can stand firm as well. In the decades surrounding Christ's death, so go back to the first century, in the decades before and after his death, there were numerous messianic claimants in Israel. One and then another who stood up and said, yes, I'm the Messiah. They would come out of the desert, attract large crowds, and try to start a revolution. And you know what happened to them? The Romans disposed of them one by one. They brutalized them, crucified them, killed them. And you know what else? Not one of their followers ever in any way suggested that their former leader was somehow alive again. They knew, as N.T. Wright put it, that they'd backed the wrong horse that the jig was up, that it was all over. But Jesus' disciples were different. They insisted on pain of death that their master was alive. They had seen him. They had talked to him. They had touched him. They said that he had been raised to life and had utterly defeated death. 
And from that time on, they regarded death as a disgraced and defeated enemy, and they lived fearlessly and wholly abandoned. Because Jesus believed in the resurrection, they believed in the resurrection. Because he was raised, they too would be raised. Sometimes on Sunday mornings, we'll sing Chris Tomlin's song, I Will Rise. Do you know it? I will rise when he calls my name. No more sorrow, no more pain. I will rise on eagles' wings. Listen, Jesus could have written that song. Even as he told this parable, certain that death was imminent, he could say with the psalmist, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Now, I've been saying that Jesus was telling his story, and he was, but listen to this. He was telling our story too. For his resurrection was not an isolated, one-of-a-kind, never-to-be-repeated event. The Bible teaches that his resurrection was the first stone in an avalanche. That, by the way, is the title for next Sunday's sermon because one Sunday is not enough to talk about this. The first stone, but not the last. Jesus started something on that first Easter morning, something that you and I are a part of if our lives have been connected to his by faith. Jesus started it, but our turn is coming. Now let's pray. God, until that day when our turn comes, keep us faithful. As Larry was saying, we get double vision and we don't know which direction we're going. But you do. So hold us, lead us, keep us. Not just for the resurrection, but in the power of the resurrection. For the sake and for the name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit now and forevermore. Amen.